the Biden White House are pushing Ukraine to start returning to the negotiating table as compassion fatigue sets in more. This sense that the days of writing blank checks to Ukraine might be over. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, Hollywood, and the players who run it all. It is Tuesday, November 8th. I am Teddy Schleifer, in for Peter Hamby. Today, Julia Yaffe is here to talk about American foreign policy toward Ukraine. It is election day, after all, and our foreign policy may change if Republicans take some control in Washington. And later, Eric Garner is here to talk about round two of the Apple versus Epic antitrust lawsuit. That lawsuit could have a gargantuan impact all throughout Silicon Valley. We'll hear all about that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Happy Election Day, everybody. It is Tuesday, November 8th. Julia Yaffe is here to talk about what the election could mean for the foreign policy and Washington consensus on Ukraine. Hey, Julia. Sup. Sup. So Democrats and Republicans have largely agreed or, or at least largely been deferential to Biden in terms of how the United States should approach the war in Ukraine. It seems like one House of Congress, at least, is going to be Republican by the time we return to this recording tomorrow. And Julia, I'm wondering how we might anticipate how a change in, in party control in Washington could uh, have ramifications for foreign policy overseas. So just tell me to, to, to start out here, how would a divided Washington, you think, uh, approach Ukraine differently than the Washington over the last nine months? I think that is the question when it comes to American support of Ukraine. And if heretofore we've seen a pretty unified mainstream, even the mainstream of the Republican Party, if we can even call it that, the isolationist MAGA wing has been growing in influence on foreign policy too. And kind of the Tucker Carlson influenced wing that has been questioning Ukraine Ukraine and America's alliance with Ukraine, questioning Ukraine as a bunch of corrupt neo-Nazis, questioning why we aren't aligned with Russia as, you know, the more powerful nation, the the Christian white nation that they think would make a more natural ally for the U.S. has been growing in influence. And we've been seeing Republican senators uh, who were not isolations before, including p- people who were, for example, uh, Trump's former uh, ambassador to Japan, voting against aid to Ukraine. Um, something like 20% of the Republican House members and, and 11 Republican senators voted against that big $40 billion aid package, in part because they disagree with it, in part because they wanted to stick it to Biden, whatever. But now if they control 
Congress, I think now there's going to be even more of a desire, even more of a temptation to stick sticks in Biden's wheels and prevent him from having any policy successes, including on the world stage. Plus, you know, there's a growing ideological disagreement with Biden on his support of Ukraine. Right. So Marjorie Taylor Greene said last week that under Republicans, not another penny will go to Ukraine. Kevin McCarthy, who has more power than she does, says says that I think people are going to be sitting in a recession and they're not going to write a blank check to Ukraine. They they just won't do it. I mean, obviously, you know, McCarthy is the next speaker. MTG has you know power as a as, as a rabble rouser here. I mean, is this is it fair to think of this as the consensus? But not just as a rabble rouser. You know, she's not just a rabble rouser. I think she represents kind of the new face of the Republican Party. And people like Kevin McCarthy are really scared of her. And Kevin McCarthy understands the power she has with the base. And if before he kind of accepted the congressional vote to strip Marjorie Taylor Greene of her committee assignments back in February of 2021, now he's saying that in the new Congress, she can not only have her committee assignments back, but she can have whatever committee assignments she wants, right? She's going to come into this new Congress with more power than she ever had. I was bringing those two up to, to show that very different Republicans are all sort of saying the same thing. And, and I'm wondering whether or not it's it's fair to call kind of Ukraine aid skepticism like the consensus position in the Republican conference going forward, or if, you know, there are still enough kind of mainstream neoconservative or neoconservative light Republicans who will, might disagree with McCarthy and MTG and, you know, support Ukraine aid just like they have, you know, over the last nine months. I don't know. Here's the thing. There might be a third position where it's not, you know, a 40 billion aid package and it's not not another penny, but it's something that is significantly pared back. And it's um, something that qualifies as a rebuke to the Biden White House the next time he comes and asks for aid for Ukraine and a Republican controlled Congress says, fine, we'll give aid to Ukraine, but it'll be, you know, 30% of what you asked. Sure, we're, we're not abandoning Ukraine, but we are saying that we do control the purse strings and we're not going to give you everything you ask for. So that's the third option. And they might have, and they might have allies on that on the far left. We saw the Progressive Caucus begin to, to voice uh, some mild pushback with kind of the Biden administration's foreign policy to date. Uh, a couple weeks ago. So I'm wondering whether or not this is the even consensus Democratic Party position at this point. The Progressive Caucus got so much pushback for that, which wasn't, when you read it, it wasn't even that bad because, you know, they said they did all the, you know, disclaimers, right, of yes, it's good that we're helping Ukraine fight and yes, it's, and what Putin is doing is bad and unprovoked aggression and blah, blah, blah. But it's still what they did propose provoked such a backlash, such outcry that they just frankly got their asses handed to them to such a degree that they then blamed it on some staffers. And I don't know whether to believe that, where they said that, you know, that it was just a bunch of disgruntled staffers putting out a draft from July. And now you're seeing reports both in the American press and now in the Italian press that both NATO and the Biden White House are pushing Ukraine a little bit to start returning to the negotiating table with Russia as energy prices in Europe spike, as inflation spikes, 
in the U.S. and energy prices spike in the U.S. as compassion fatigue sets in more. And this sense that the days of writing blank checks to Ukraine might be over in everywhere in the West. Because now in, in, in the United States, you have a Republican Party that is obviously politically more empowered. You have a Democratic Party where we're, you know, we're beginning to see fissures does feel like the the public opinion consensus, which had not been unanimous, but had been kind of unanimous, right? Or, or there had not really been much to uh, much to grok at there. I mean, there was another vote for Ukraine aid in January 2023. You would imagine totals would look differently. Yeah, although ironically, you know, what we've learned from wars past is that sometimes when you give less aid, it makes the war drag on for longer. It makes it harder for the side you're supporting to win decisively, especially when it's fighting a really strong, relatively strong foe like Russia. When when you're giving a country like Ukraine, let's say a Republican-controlled Congress does you know, what we just discussed uh, and approves another aid package for Ukraine, but does a limited allocation of funds, that might actually make the war drag on for longer than if they said, okay, yes, let's just do like a gazillion HIMARS, a gazillion fighter jets, a gazillion, whatever you want, right? That might actually help the war end faster and mitigate the effects of it faster than if you do this kind of death by a thousand cuts approach. All right, Juliet. Well, we'll see just how many Republican seats uh, are picked up, but, but obviously you're right. I'm right. We're all right that this is sort of the beginning of, of a new foreign policy. Julia, thanks for coming by. Thanks for having me. When we come back, Ben Landy and Eric Gardner are here on the Epic Games lawsuit that is going to ripple through Silicon Valley. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Welcome back from the break. I'm Ben Landy here with Puck's legal expert, Eric Gardner, to talk about a case that's a little under the radar, but could potentially massively upend the hierarchy of the tech giants in Silicon Valley. Apple versus Epic Games. People might be familiar with this case from back in 2020 when Epic tried to avoid paying the 30% fee that Apple takes on all the money that flows through its app ecosystem. There was a lawsuit that didn't go Epic's way entirely, but now it's going to the Ninth Circuit on appeal. Eric, what is sort of the, the quick backstory on this dispute for folks who have not been following it? Sure. Well, Fortnite is a massively popular game. It might be the, the most popular mobile game out there. And um, it generates an, its an entire own economy where people, you know, buy add-ons to the game. What Epic, the developer of Fortnite, wanted to do was to save some of the surcharges that Apple was getting, the 30%. It basically told consumers that they could start, you know, purchasing this stuff outside of the app to avoid the 30%. And that, you know, broke Apple's rules and it, it set off this, you know, giant 
fisticuffs between the two companies where Fortnite was booted. There was a contract breach alleged, antitrust violations alleged, and it went to trial. Um, and that's basically it. But, you know, a lot of companies do business in the Apple uh, App Store. And so, you know, this has giant consequences to, to everyone, you know, Spotify, Microsoft, a lot of people are watching this case. Yeah, and the appeal is next week. It starts next Monday. Yeah, the hearing is uh, is next Monday. Uh, you know, when the trial took place, it was a big deal. But you know, because litigation is slow, anyone could be forgiven for, for not realizing that it's approached so quickly now. Uh, yeah, the hearing is going to be next week, and not only are Apple and Epic going to be arguing, but uh, the Biden administration has gotten some time to also argue, as well as the state of California pretty rare for the feds to be arguing in in a civil case at a lower appeals court. Sometimes that happens at the Supreme Court, obviously, but uh, uh, it just shows the the huge stakes of of this case. We should also talk about Wall Street. Just to acknowledge how much money is at play here, you wrote that an expert witness that Epic had called up estimated that Apple takes in $22 billion a year at something like an 80% margin. So that's that's almost pure profit that Apple is making on this 30% tax or commission, whatever you want to call it, on these payments that are flowing through its app store. Even just looking at like the, the, the price to earnings ratio of Apple right now, 22 billion, 25 billion, that's something like half a trillion dollars in market value that Apple has generated here that they're capturing. And, and that's not even including whatever the value is of their market dominance in this space. So just, just a huge amount of money, right? Yeah, it's a big, it's a big amount of money for them, but it's not just the payments that they're getting uh, from these app developers that's important for them. It's also the fact that they control the ecosphere. If the ecosphere is is kind of opened up, that leads to other sorts of markets that Apple doesn't control. Um, you know, and you know, possibly that will disintegrate the worth of of even having an iPhone or something like that. So, so this is a lot more valuable to them than just twenty two billion a year, as astonishing as it is to believe. And as far as the other stakes go for for these companies. It's not just the money; it's also the rules about you know what can and can't be done within the app. Who manages the the customer experience? Who collects the data? All that is crucially important. So you know what we're really talking about is the entire digital economy here. There have been antitrust lawsuits over you know credit card fees, uh, Visa and Mastercard. This is really the digital equivalent of that. Arguably, even even greater just based on how much of a of a role Apple plays uh, in all these different markets and all these different digital ecosystems. The judge in the original case basically agreed with Apple that, okay, 30%, that's a lot of money, but she didn't think that Apple had actually broken any antitrust laws. And it also sounds like she bought Apple's argument that basically it needs this tight control, as you said, uh, over the App Store, because it provides a lot of security benefits to to users and protecting them from hackers and also potential national security threats. But Eric, what is the crux of Epic's appeal here? Which are the elements of the case that they are pushing back on specifically? Yeah, well, uh, you know, in antitrust law, there's something called the rule of reason, um, where you're supposed to balance the anti-competitive harms with the pro-competitive justifications. And that did happen here, but Epic wasn't particularly satisfied with, with the entire balancing 
and whether or not the judge really looked at whether there were less restrictive alternatives. You know, perhaps, you know, Apple can point to some security benefits for the system, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they needed to charge 30%. They could probably, you know, charge maybe 25% and still have those security benefits. So Epic wants to get into the nitty gritty. They also, you know, have uh, some problems with elsewhere with the judge's analysis. For instance, what is the market that Apple has allegedly abused here? According to Epic, it's just the distribution of apps at large, whereas the judge, you know, really constrained it just to transaction payments in the gaming space, which is, you know, a lot less. And that gets into justifications and harms in a different way. Yeah, it it seems pretty clear that, um, you know, obviously Apple provides a real service here and it seems reasonable to expect that they would take some money in exchange for making the app ecosystem on, on Apple devices so secure and pleasant and streamlined. But on the other hand, it, it does seem hard to justify an 80% margin on this when you have so many other players in the space who are, who are coming forward and saying, this is really taking a bite out of our businesses. And, it, and in fact, is a tax really on the entire global internet. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what would normally happen in a market is that other players would, would come along. They'd see that, you know, there's one company out there that's that's charging such a big premium for something and they'd come along and they'd, offer a competing product, and that would bring prices down. That's essentially how capitalism works. And antitrust is what happens in situations when there's one dominant company that controls a, a system uh, to the extent and, and is able to basically dictate terms for the entire sellers on the market. And that's you know basically what is being decided here. Yes, Apple has offered a very good product, a uh, product that, that is enjoyed by, by, you know, countless amount of people. And uh, they certainly deserve to be rewarded for that. But at what point do their restrictions need to be taken a hard look at here under antitrust law? Yeah, the consequences of this are, are just incredible to ponder. Apple, obviously, is such a massive, seemingly untouchable company with this market cap that has barely declined at the time when all the other Silicon Valley competitors have really taken it on the nose. So it'll be interesting to see whether this is sort of the beginning of the end of uh, Apple's untouchability in terms of its market dominance. But Eric, thanks for stopping by and explaining all this. Um, I know you'll be following it closely on your newsletter, The Rainmaker, which people should sign up for if they haven't already. And we'll see what happens next week when the hearing actually begins. All right. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.